Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we're continuing in our one-week series, Finding Forgiveness for the Worst of Sins. And we'll be looking in our Bibles to Psalm chapter 51, verses 5 to 19, with a message entitled, Where Forgiveness is Found. I remember once in a sermon telling the story of John Newton, the man who wrote the very famous hymn, Amazing Grace. I spoke of his career as a slave trader and then of his conversion, followed by his eventual abandonment of his lucrative slave trading career, and eventually he became a pastor and an opponent of the slave trade. You know, after the sermon was done, a woman approached me and she was quite upset. She said, after all those lives that man destroyed, one simple confession, and he becomes one of your heroes, it's not good enough. You know, I've thought about that, and, and I think she has a point. Our doctrine of forgiveness through Christ does not heal the lives of people that our sin has devastated. We're talking about what to do when our sins are so large that they have done considerable damage. The story is told of a British newspaper publisher and a politician whose name was William Beaverbrook. Beaverbrook had printed a slanderous and damaging editorial about a man named Edward Heath, and Heath was a young member of the parliament. And in a washroom in the London club, the two men met by accident. And Beaverbrook, embarrassed by the encounter, said, you know, my dear chap, I've been thinking the matter over, and I want to tell you that I was wrong in what I said in that article. And Heath responded, well, very well, but the next time, I wish you would insult me in the washroom and apologize in the newspaper. And that, I think, is the point. To many, finding forgiveness does not undo the damage. The sinner goes free, but the ones damaged remain damaged. But in response to this, let's go back to King David. Yes, it is true that after killing Uriah the Hittite, Uriah does not come back to life, and the marriage of Uriah and Bathsheba is not restored, and they don't have a family together. In fact, David is married now to Bathsheba, and eventually the couple will have a son named Solomon who is going to become the king of Israel. And if we're cynical, we might raise our eyebrows and say, well, how convenient. And in truth, David's repentance is anything but convenient. You know, today, as we study Psalm 51, verses 5 to 19, I want to offer hope not to those who are self-righteously outraged by the sins of others, but I wish to offer hope to those whose sins are significant and who wonder what's to be done. I'm going to say that in repentance, we offer to God four things. First, offer him an honest owning of our sin. Second, plead for an inner cleansing of your being. Third, make a commitment to teach others lessons from your sins and your cleansing. And fourth, pray earnestly for and commit yourself to the well-being of those whom you have wounded. So let's consider each one of those points in turn. First, offer to God an honest appraisal of your sin. I'm reading Psalm 51, 5 to 6. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. You know, if you listen to yesterday's program, I made the point that David named his sin for what it was. There was no justifications being offered, no spin, no making of his actions any less than what they were. No, David owned the full weight of his own sin. But in verse 5, he takes it up to another level. 
He says he was conceived in sin. Theologians have called this the doctrine of original sin. The Bible diagnoses sin as the universal deformity of human nature found at every point of our personality in every person, not just from the very time we drew our first breath, but from the moment we came into existence from conception. What this means is that our moral and spiritual nature is not just defective, it's depraved. It's a statement of our true identity, and this depravity is found in every area of our humanity, from my thought processes, to the emotions that I feel, to the decisions that I make, to my experience of sexuality, to the way I conduct relationships. Now, please understand that when David speaks this way, he's not saying, what can I do? After all, I was born in sin. Rather, he's coming to terms with the fact of the depth of his sin that he is far more sinful than he would have thought, for he has never known a moment in which he was not sinning. I wonder how many of us haven't owned that in our own lives. And then to make matters worse, David contrasts his own experience in sin with God's desire for him. The God that David has delighted in is the God who delights in truth. And David, who has said that he loved God, when the chips were down, found to his astonishment that he was a man who delighted in lies. Confession, when it's real, stops hiding these facts. Confession, when it's real, opens a door to what we truly are, and we're confronted with the horror of what we have done. That's when confession moves from being a quick get-out-of-jail-free card to allowing the door to open and gazing at that which is most unlovely in ourselves. It's painful and it's disturbing, but it is also refreshingly honest. Now, I've said that first, that our confession is real when it offers to God a genuine and honest ownership of our sin. Second, confession is real when it offers to God a plea to be purified. Let's read verses 7 to 12. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. See, I find this part of the psalm one of the most helpful teachings on on how to repent properly. What we need are two things. We need to be cleansed from the stain of our sins. And second, we need the creation of a new heart so that we won't walk in those sins again. Let me take each of them in turn. Those of you who know Shakespeare's Macbeth will remember that Lady Macbeth would walk in her sleep and she'd seem to try to wash her hands and she would say, will these hands ne'er be clean? She would remember her part in murder and then look at her hands and then she would say, here's the smell of blood still. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. See, some of us feel that way about our own past. Maybe you've committed adultery. Maybe you've committed murder. Maybe you've lied or destroyed it. Maybe you have harmed your church, or maybe you've harmed a child or something else, and you know that you've ultimately sinned against God. You look at your hands and you feel the stain of that which will never come out. 
But David says that his hands will be clean again if God cleanses him. And so he says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. You know, hyssop is a plant with kind of hairy leaves, and so it can hold water. And in the Old Testament, it was used for ceremonial cleansing as when a man was healed of leprosy. Law of Leviticus mandated that hyssop be used to ceremonially indicate that no leprosy was found in him anymore. He was free. And David says that if God would use his sacred hyssop, he would be cleansed of a disease far greater than leprosy. In the very famous verse 10, create in me a clean heart says something similar. The Hebrew word for create is a word that's used in Genesis. It's, it's the word bara. In Genesis, God creates by simply speaking something into existence, and it's so. And that, says David, is what I need. Like Lady Macbeth, whose hands could never be washed clean, David would have said, I can't wash my hands clean either, but if you wash me, I will be whiter than snow. If you create something that can't be created by anyone but you, a clean heart, then my heart will be clean. If you purge me with your hyssop, this leprous sin will be healed. If you have a blotter in which the stain of my soul can be blotted out, then I shall be free. In essence, David is saying, I can't make this thing right. Indeed, I can't even be clean for my evil sin nature in which delights in adultery and murder and lying. And I am foul, but nothing is too hard for you. You can do what can't be done by anything else. And this, my dear sinning brother or sister, is what is offered to you in Christ's cross. It's not just that we want forgiveness. We do want that. But we also want cleansing. Now, let me state it a different way. It's not just that we want forgiveness. We need cleansing. If as Psalm 24 reminds us, only those with clean hands and a pure heart can ascend the hill of the Lord, and none of us can make our hands or our hearts so. But God can change the heart, and God can change the inner being. We need to plead with God that he would do just that. In Doubt is making an impact upon the lives of young adults right across Canada, and in fact, the world. Isaac Dagno hosts a nationwide podcast and radio program that engages young adults into meaningful and relevant conversations about faith and life. Join Isaac in the next few weeks as special guests discuss transgenderism, marijuana, saving truth in a post-truth culture, and sexual abuse. And remember to visit indoubt.ca to discover past programs on a variety of engaging topics. What are listeners saying? Well, one said this podcast features topics that are relevant and thought-provoking for the young Christian. I am a dedicated listener. Remember, if making these types of Bible teaching programs available to young adults is important to you, consider supporting In Doubt with a financial gift. You make this ministry possible. So call us today at one 800 663 2425 or visit indoubt.ca. Psalm 51, 7 to 12 reminds us of two things. It reminds us that we need to be cleansed, and if we are to stop from being plunged into the same foul sin again, we will also need a new heart. Now, years ago, Kathy, my wife, led a woman to Christ, and, and several days later, she called me. 
She told me that she knew I wasn't a priest, but she said she didn't know how to do this, but she had to come for confession. I said, of course. And she came in in tears, told me that she had had four abortions. Now, no one had talked to her about that, but upon conversion, she was overwhelmed with the enormity of what she had done. She said, I've taken the life of four of my own children. And she wept. What to do? Would God ever look upon her? She was so ashamed. That day, as she wept in my presence, I read to her from Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. That's what God's word to us is. You can be made clean. You can be restored. Now, very briefly, what do we do with verses 11 and 12? When David asks that the Holy Spirit not be removed from him, is it possible to lose our salvation? And I know that this is a much bigger issue that we can deal with here in today's broadcast. In the future, I'm going to do a one-week series just on salvation, and I will deal with that. But let me give a very brief response. God threatens his people with terrible things if we will not repent. I believe it to be a mark of the elect that we take these warnings seriously. When we hear of God's warnings that if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received a knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. If we take that to heart and plead with God, oh God, give me a pure heart so that I might fight sin with all my heart, then God will hear and answer that prayer. So let's review. We have said that in repentance, we offer to God four things. First, we offer him an honest owning of our sin. Second, we plead for inner cleansing of our being. And then third, we make a commitment to teach others lessons from our sins and our cleansing. Let's read Psalm 51, 13 to 17. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. See, David immediately begins to talk about teaching transgressors himself. He speaks about declaring God's praise. There's something we should keep in mind about this psalm. This psalm is a public statement of David's private, sordid experience. See, some of us are uncomfortable about our secret sins, but David was not. This psalm became a model of teaching on how to deal with this kind of sin. David's repentance, his full public disclosure of his sin, has for millennia encouraged one repentant sinner after another. It tells us that God still finds usefulness for depraved sinners. Notice that David is determined to teach others two essential aspects of God. First, he will teach others your ways, he says. It's found in verse 13. And and then second, according to verse 14, he says, my tongue will sing aloud your righteousness. And so the ways of God and the righteousness of God are for David the key lessons to be learned here. Given the nature of this psalm, we must assume that the ways of God that David speaks about have to do with the ways of God in regards to sinners. But what of God's ways with sinners does David want us to know? 
And it seems to me that Psalm 32, which we will discuss tomorrow, is David's fulfillment of this vow. There he will speak about God's ways in forgiving transgression. David will commit to teach that sin does not mean that we need to fall into despair, but there is hope if we run to God and not away from him. The entire Bible tells that story. From Adam's sin to Christ's death on the cross to the promise in the end that all things will be made new to the creation of a new heavens and a new earth that is both the dwelling place of God and of man. All of this is God's story of redemption. To tell of the ways of God is to tell of the God who loved the world and he gave his one and only son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. The ways of God are the ways of reconciliation and forgiveness. Now, the righteousness of God, again, can be seen as God's uncompromising and fierce holiness in which he condemns both sin and the sinner. But in terms of this psalm, it must be about God's gift of righteousness to all who believe. It's what we have in 1 John 1.9, which says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Or he is faithful and righteous and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, God has found a way, said David, to be righteous and to be the one who forgives sinners. And of course, David did not know how God had done that. But now we know. He did it by condemning Christ in our place. So whenever God forgives a sinner, he demonstrates his righteousness in the cross. And David is committed to teaching those lessons to sinners. And then he adds an important feature. Verse 14 says, you will not delight in sacrifice. Speaking to Old Testament believers, David reminds them that for the kinds of sin he has committed, there were no temple sacrifices. The ritual in the tabernacle was a reminder of sin and was also there to excuse minor infractions but not the high-handed sin or the kind of rebellion that David had committed. Instead, he had gone to God with a broken heart, and this broken heart was accepted by God. It was Isaiah 66, verse 2, that says, But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. What David wants to teach us is that if he as king is public and honest about his sin, then we can do that as well. Years ago, I remember dealing with a man who had committed adultery. I was with him when he went to his in-laws and told them how he had sinned against their daughter and against them who had trusted him with her and against his God. And then sometime later, I heard this same man speak to men about faithfulness and the terrible pain of adultery about confession of sin and and reconciliation, and you could have heard a pin drop in the room. Everyone not only listened, I watched as men step forward to commit loyalty to their God and to the vows that they had made. Sin does not mean that we're never useful again. Restoration with God can move to meaningful ministry again. It did for David. It did for John Newton, the slave trader, and it can be for you if you will be but open. Let's move to David's final prayer in in Psalm 51. Verses 18 and 19 closes out this psalm by saying, Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. 
See, David knows that as king, what he does and the personal ethical decisions that he makes has a great impact far beyond himself. David knows how his sin will affect his nation. Events have been set in motion, and they are not to be reversed. And so he prays for his nation. In the future, his personal failings will bring about a civil war. But David prays that the nation itself will not lurch into sin, but will return to worship and to sacrifice and be faithful to their God. And as we can see from his life, he works tirelessly to that end. See, I know of pastors who have sinned and those who have rejected Christ because of them. And the great danger in such a time is to pull the blanket over your head and go into hiding. Such must never be the case. If God offers forgiveness, then those who are forgiven reach out to those who have been harmed through their sin. I'm not saying that pastor needs to go back to ministry. Many cases they shouldn't. But if the slave trader John Newton reached out his hand and supported William Wilberforce and that ended the slave trade in Great Britain, think about what can be done by open rejection of our own sin. And so to the sinner who seeks forgiveness, seek it. Don't be silent, either about your sin or about a God who is gracious and compassionate so that you might offer hope to those who presently have none. John, let's chat about the practicality of forgiveness and confession. Let me ask you the question, for instance, if someone has committed adultery, should they confess it to their spouse if their spouse doesn't know? Yeah, and that's so important to ask. I want to give an answer that I think is relatively categorical. Um, I mean, somebody might find a reason not to, but I'm going to say that in almost every situation that I can think of, if a person has committed adultery, they need to tell their spouse. Sin lives well in dark places. Where it is exposed to the light, it becomes honest. As a matter of fact, a great brokenness has already happened, and I don't think that one can begin to heal that brokenness until the sin is exposed. It is at that point in time that I think that the work can begin in which an individual begins to come clean with everything they've done. And by the way, let me say it, that if the person who has sinned takes the initiative, they're already way past first base. I mean, they are on the way. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. What greater investment could there be than providing tools to engage our children in God's Word? Well, that's the intent of Back to the Bible Kids, three mobile games designed to teach and encourage Bible knowledge and scripture memorization. So take some time to sit down with your son or your daughter or grandchild today and visit Back to the Bible Kids online at backtothebible.ca and discover what it's all about. Or go ahead, download the games for free at the Apple and Google Play stores. Bible ABCs, Bible coloring, or Noah's Elephant in the Room can be yours to play today for free. And if you'd like more information about all the ministry resources and programs of Back to the Bible Canada, or you'd like to support the ministries with a financial gift, call us today, would you, at one 800 
663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca.